This is Leewood Online, a ministry of Leewood Baptist Church, located in the Kansas City area. For more information about us, visit us online at www.leewoodbaptist.com. Good morning. My name is Rob Sykes, and today I'll be reading the scripture passage found in uh, Colossians 3, 1 through 17, and it's found in the Pew Bible on page 984. And that scripture reading is found in Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 17. If then you have raised with Christ... Seek the things that are above, which Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is no Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, Slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. Put on then as Christ's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience, bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you so you also must forgive. And above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. And let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body. And be thankful. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing praises, psalms, and hymns, and spiritual songs with thanksgiveness in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Try to pray for us. There we go. Jesus, thank you for your mercy and grace. This uh, verse that we just heard closes with um, a call for us to be thankful and to do everything in your name. So right now in this moment, uh, with our grief and our sadness, with our longings, uh, with things that are going great, with our questions, uh, with our suffering, we ask for your help. And we ask that we would engage those things in your name and that you would stir a kind of thankfulness in us that comes from hearing from you and you being near to us and you providing for us. Thanks that when we sing a song crying out that we, that we need you, that what we want is you. Thanks that you've made a way to be available through your sacrifice, through your own death and atoning gift to us. You made it possible that we could actually come close. So we just start from that place and say thank you. And from there, would you help us make sense of everything else? this morning. So my friends have lots they're carrying, so, some really pleasant and some that feel severe. So would you, would you come close? I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Hey, if we haven't met, my name is Chris, and I would love to dismiss the children who are heading to first through third grade class. Uh, so if you're uh, first or third grade and you're checked in, you're welcome to head back that direction. Um, if anybody's left in here for that. Uh, hey, and there are a couple of kids that are still in here. Uh, I'm really thankful that you're in here. So kids, if you're here, we have this really cool packet in the back um, that Mr. Stephen puts together every week. Uh, there's some exercises in there. There's some activity. There's some things to draw. There's some, some stuff for you. And this week is kind of a special week. I'm going to put on the screen here in a little bit of diagram that I drew on a napkin that my wife made look pretty cool and like a real diagram. But there's a way for you to kind of capture that drawing in this packet. And if you do anything in that packet, the word search or any of the questions or the spot, the difference exercise, and you bring that to Mr. Rob, who read the scripture just a moment ago, he'll meet you in the back by where we store the fruit snacks, and he will take your drawing and give you fruit snacks. Children of all ages, you're welcome to do that. Uh, so if you have this drawing, I would love for this to kind of be in our hearts. Um, but kids, these packets are back there if you need one. Uh, I'd love for you to grab one on your way. Uh, even now, you could come while I'm introducing, you could go and grab that. All right, so here's the deal. Uh, if we haven't met, my name is Chris, and um, I am uh, really excited about this morning. If you're new with us, it's a great morning to come and gather because we're doing a little mini-series on the church. So we've been walking through the book of Matthew um, since December, and we're taking three weeks this summer just to talk about what is the church and why does it exist and what's God's plan for that. And we've talked about three concentric circles. First, like why does it actually exist? And then if that's true, then what are we doing as a church? What's our plan as a church? And then a how of how do you actually participate in that? So kind of a why at the big level, 10,000 foot, what is the church even about? Then what are we about as a church? And then how do you meaningfully engage as an individual in this local body? And of course, this series hits at a really challenging time. To say that it's been a challenging year or a year of lots of change would be a massive understatement. And so I want to use this three-week series as a way to kind of ground us because COVID made us ask a lot of questions that we should ask about what is church anyway. So when everything shuts down last spring and we go online and now you're watching through a screen, you begin to ask questions of what is actually the church? And those of you who are still home or you're tuning in online, I'm so thankful for our technology to let you engage that way. But, but you know you're missing something about just being in the body. And it's one thing that we kind of feel, but we're not really sure like what it is. Like what is it that seems strange or what is it that we've lost or what should we actually try to recapture as we begin to turn things back on coming out of COVID? And so, so the change that our world has kind of brought upon us this last pandemic has made us ask kind of what is the church anyway? So I want to use the series as a way to kind of ground us there, but also our specific churches faced a lot of change. We came into COVID through a lot of transition. COVID was really hard for us. Then we had a massive amount of suffering in the summertime. And then I came in December. And so it's just been a lot of upheaval. So if you've been here for a long time, everything has changed around you. If you're brand new, you're stepping into something that has changed quite a bit. And so even for our local body, beyond what's happening globally in our local body, just to ask, like, what is the church actually about? What are we trying to do as a church? And my hope is that it's a comfort and reminder to those who've been here for a long time. Like this is what the church is for and what we're trying to do, even though it feels maybe a little bit different. Here's the aim that we're aiming for. And then for those who are new, who are kind of kicking the tires, asking what is this particular church about, I want to put in front of you kind of our vision. Now, the tricky thing about visions is that the church, I think, is bigger than just the vision of the church. I think it's bigger than the pastor. It's bigger than our strategy. It's bigger than our programs. The church really is the people of God living out the, the plan of God in the world. So it's bigger than just a vision which I love that we have members that have been part of this church for over 60 years, which means they've seen pastors come and go, uh, statements come and go, strategies come and go, vision statements come and go. And there's an anchor because the church really is about Jesus. It's not about the vision. And that kind of is a weird thing to say, right? The vision should align with Jesus. The vision should point us to Jesus, but, but there's something deeper than even our strategy. So I want to say that up front because this morning as we talk about the what we're trying to do, I want to put in front of you, like here's the place we're aiming. Here's the E on the I chart for us. Here's the main focus for us as a church. But that sits under the main idea of the church, which is that we exist as a people of God who are reflecting his glory to each other and to the world. Like that, that's why the church happens. So our vision is like a lowercase v vision. God's vision for the church is the thing that trumps and actually defines 
our vision. And so in a kind of a subversive way, what I actually want to do is show you how our vision just comes straight from this passage. Because I actually don't want that capital V vision and the lowercase v vision to be very far apart. I want you to actually see them connected. And actually, what I'd love for you to do is leave this morning going, that dude just plagiarized his whole idea about church straight from this passage. He's so uncreative. Like, I would love it if you left here really underwhelmed with my innovation because you went, that's just straight from that passage. What, what a poser. What, what, a, what a plagiarizer. If that's the way we landed, I would actually be, I would be delighted. So, so here's what we're going to do. I want to move in kind of two ways this morning. There'll be two parts. It's a different kind of sermon. I want to walk through actually Colossians 3.1 all the way to 4.6 and kind of put the parts of our vision on the table for you. There'll actually be 10 kind of phrases or, or categories that we'll highlight from this text that, that are kind of making up our vision. And then I want to move in the second part towards some application. So we'll actually walk through the text and I'll put it in front of you and then we'll say, so what does that mean and how does that work here in the life of our church. Okay, so that's kind of my introduction. I want to go back real quick though to where we were last week when we talked about kind of the why the church exists. We were in Ephesians. So if you flip over just a couple of pages to the left to the book of Ephesians, it's on page 977. We were in chapter 3 last week, and we talked about the mystery of God that is revealed in the church. And essentially what Paul's saying is God's always had a people And you were born into the family of God through the line of Abraham. And anyone could jump into that family if they became a Jew. You could convert and come into the family of God. But it was through that heritage and through that lineage that the people of God existed. And then the mystery that was explained in Christ was that God's plan always was to welcome more than just ethnic Jews. That the church actually always was for all of the world. And so there's a passage in Isaiah that says, it's too small of a thing if I just came to rescue the Israelites. That's too small of a vision. God actually has a global vision to rescue and ransom the entire world. And what Paul says is the mystery is that that's always been the plan. And in Christ, we see it clearly. So it moves from an ethnic family line to one of faith. And now anybody can jump into the family of God, not by becoming part of an ethnic group, but by faith in Jesus. And so that's the mystery that was explained. So let's go to verse 6 of chapter 3 in Ephesians, just kind of as a review. He says, this mystery is that the Gentiles, or anybody who wasn't born a Jew, that they're fellow heirs, they're members of the same body and partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. So, so the mystery that was not like the, uh, a riddle that was confounding people, but it's something that was concealed that's now been revealed is that the plan always was that through Jesus and what he did on the cross, which is what it means to, to have the gospel, the gospel is the message of what God has done to rescue and ransom us. It's that Jesus himself, God's son, went to the cross, died in our place, atoned for our sin, and made it possible for us to be forgiven and reconciled to God himself. That's, that's what the gospel means, right? So we kind of use it as a shorthand term. It's good news about what God has done through his son. And that's been revealed, he says. And in verse 7, of this gospel, Paul speaking that I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me by the working of his power. It's all about him. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. It's more than you can even wrap your mind around. And to bring to light for everybody what was the plan of the mystery that was hidden for ages, right? It was concealed, but now it's been revealed. God who created all things so that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. Here's the plan of God that the church exists to demonstrate his faithfulness. What we're about is gathering as a people to say, God kept his promise. Way back in the garden, he promised to send one who was going to defeat our ancient enemy and make a way for us to be reconciled and back into a relationship with him. Sin separated us from God. And he sent his son Jesus to come and make a way for us to be back in relationship. And so the church, as it gathers, is an expression. It's not first an institution. It's an expression of that faithfulness. So we gather to remember God's faithfulness. We gather to invite other people to experience God's faithfulness. Where we're telling each other, and it says actually we're showing the universe, actually to the principalities and powers, when this ragtag group of people 
who are so different and diverse. They're, they're from all over the map, emotionally, spiritually, economically, racially, geographically. When that thing gathers together, it shows God's faithfulness to keep his promise to rescue a people. So the why of the church is that God wants to see people actually redeemed and rescued, and we gather to demonstrate that faithfulness. So that, that's the why. Now, if we go back to Colossians, flip back to the right, go to chapter 1 of Colossians, because we're kind of in the middle of the letter, which is a little bit cheating when we start in chapter 3. So we'll start in chapter 1 for a second, just to even kind of pick up some of these themes. He, he talks through what it means to know God. He talks through like his thanksgiving for what God's been doing. And in verse 24 of chapter 1 in Colossians, it's on page 983. Let me just start there. He says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body that is the church. That's a little bit of a confusing verse. I think it maybe is best understood what was lacking was getting the message to people, right? Christ died in a certain location and place. What was lacking is not what he did on the cross, but getting that message. And it's through his sufferings that he's willing to take that message. It's his afflictions, not that added the atoning sacrifice of Jesus, but that help actually be the vehicle that actually spread the good news. So we could talk about that later if you want. It's not really the point that I want to make, but that's a tricky verse. That's verse 24. Verse 25, of this, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery that was hidden of ages and generations, but now has been revealed to the saints. Right, The same theme we see in Ephesians 3. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of his glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The mystery is that Christ is making a people, giving them hope, reconciling them to himself, and he's demonstrating that to the world. Right, Him we proclaim, verse 28, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I labor and toil, struggling with all of God's energy that he so powerfully works within me. So you have this mystery is Christ able to come in us through reconciling us to himself. And the church gathers actually to help people grow into that, right? That we teach everyone with all wisdom so we may present everyone mature in Christ. That's the goal of the church, it is to express God's faithfulness as we don't just say the story, but we actually live in the story and are transformed by what Christ has done. So, so the why of the church is to hold out the good news and reflect that and then not just say it, but actually to experience it, to teach it and to embody it, to have it actually change and grow us. So, so again, I love that. People who have been here for a long time have kind of transcended certain vision statements. But this is what our, our website says the church is. Our website says we believe the universal church, right? The, the people of God throughout the ages, it, it transcends uh, time and space and nationalities. It goes back thousands of years. It will go forward until God comes. It's a living spiritual body of which Christ is the head. He's the boss. He's in charge. And all regenerated persons, which means those who have come to life in Christ because they trust him, all regenerated persons are members of that universal church. So we start really, really wide. And then it says we believe in the local church, what we're doing here in this physical expression at 83rd and State Line, consisting of baptized believers in Jesus Christ who have given a credible profession of their faith, and have associated or gathered together or with each other for worship and work and edification and fellowship. And we believe that God has laid upon the members of the local church the primary task of spreading the good news of Jesus to the world that doesn't yet know him. So, so what we're saying in that definition is that there's this really big expression that finds its home in certain locations and we commit together to worship and work and edification and fellowship to live out that transformation. Okay, so the church exists to give us a reminder of the hope that Christ kept his promise to reconcile a people. That's why. So what we do has to come underneath that. Right? Any program, any class, any small group, any sermon, like that is the thing that we are about. It will always be about Jesus. It's his church. He's the senior pastor. He's the head of the body. And what we're doing now is living out 
that transformation that he offers. Okay, so what Colossians 3 does then is give us a framework of how this actually happens. So here's the big 10,000-foot view, but those are really hard to hold on to. Colossians 3 gets uber practical to help us know how we actually live that out. What we're going to see is there's a process of transformation. There are some practices he gives us for transformation, and then some places that we live out this transformation. So, so we've had this diagram to kind of help capture the idea. It did not look near that cool when I first drew it on a napkin, but I think this comes straight from this text. So kind of take that in for a second, and then we're going to zoom out and kind of build it a piece at a time. But there's a process of transformation because that's the E on the I chart, to not just say that God raises from the dead, but to experience what it means to be raised from the dead. To not just be um, talking about the reconciliation of God to people, but actually to be reconciled to in the way 2 Corinthians 5 says, right? It actually changes and transforms us. So how does that process happen? What are the practices that he's given us to engage with? And where are the places that we embody that and live that out? All right, so go with me in verse 1. We'll go to the next slide. We'll start at the centerpiece here. I think this text gives us three components or three essences that are part of the process of transformation. I'm being a little bit reductionistic for sure, but if you can take these as summary categories, the three components are receiving and believing the gospel. That's Colossians. Turning away from, and if receiving the gospel is trusting in Jesus, then 5 to 11 is repentance and turning away from what we used to trust in. And then verses 12 to 17 are turning to the Spirit and trusting in God and learning how to walk in light of what He's done for us, right? So there's this G circle for the gospel. There's this negative circle talking about repentance, stepping away from things that that are of the flesh. And then a positive redemptive pattern circle that says, we don't just like repent and stop. We actually move towards life, right? So verse 1 of chapter 3, if then you've been raised with Christ, so that is gospel code and you were dead and exiled and an alien and you were an enemy the way the Bible talks. But now if you trusted him, you've been raised. There, there's new life, which is what the church is about. It's proclaiming that new life. Then seek the things that are above. If you've been raised, then let that thinking and believing about the good news of the gospel, not on the earth because you've died and your life is hidden with Christ and God, right? It covers you. It wraps you. There's a thing and there's a being. This is identity language in Christ. The gospel says if Christ is your identity and you're hiding in him, then you don't have to hide from yourself, from other people. There's a liberation that comes from hearing, I was a slave and he set me free. I was dead and he made me alive. I was an enemy and now he calls me a friend and my new identity is already loved. It's already accepted, so I can come out of the shadows, so I can actually move towards redemption, right? If Christ is hiding me, then I don't have to hide anymore. It says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory, right? Pointing to the eternal nature of what it means to be the people of God, like we live in just a vapor right now. All right, so 3, 1 to 4 is this beautiful declaration that Christ has made a way for us to have our sins forgiven to, to be reconciled to God, to have a new identity. So, so to talk about the gospel is to first receive this good news, to believe it, right? To think that way, and then to experience it and body and live into it. So we'll use shorthand to talk about a gospel identity or identity given to us. Which means I used to be an enemy, and now I'm a friend. We start there because that says we begin with what God has already done for us. Transform start with your effort and your work and your striving. It starts with what God has already accomplished for you, right? Which is like a resting, settling, deep breath for you. Because we're kind of a mess. And there's lots of places where we're not very consistent. So for him to drop this anchor and say the beginning place of transformation is to stop and recognize that Christ has already done the work. He's already hidden you. He's already raised you with Christ. You're experiencing it now. You have experienced it in the past, and you will in the future. Did you catch that in verse 3? For you have died in the past, and your life is hidden with Christ now in the present. And when Christ appears, they will appear with him in glory and with being 
engaged with. So, so transformation starts with receiving and living into a gospel identity. But we had an identity before we came to Jesus. And so he says in verse 5, put to death, therefore, what is earthly among you. And that's code for the way you used to live before you were reconciled. If, if Christ is setting our mind on things above, then things of the earth is what we're left with or how we strive or what we try to after apart our attempts to build our identity apart from Christ. It's the ways that you managed and manipulated. It's the ways that you felt alone and shame. So you used all these in this passage. Anger and wrath and malice and slander. Those are not just like bad things that you shouldn't do. They are attempts to protect an identity that you're trying to establish for yourself. You get angry when your reality and impurity and passion, evil desires, those aren't just vices we should avoid. They're things we go to for so, so if you could just stop for a second and think how crazy it is that we use sex to give us identity, that we use achievement to give us identity, we actually load our identity on things as temporal and as passing as what you can accomplish, what you could achieve on your own, what you could experience. And that's just the way it was. Apart from Jesus, that was your only option. So, so you lived into that. And what he says is now because you have a new identity, transformation happens as you repent of the old way. You put to death what is earthly among you. Move towards God Himself, right? So it's away from sin and stepping towards something. I've talked about repentance a lot. Repentance is not just feeling sorry. It's not just feeling shame. It's a change of direction. I was going this way towards an identity that I was trying to build on my own. I realize it's bankrupt. I realize it's actually deep. It's not just a behavior. It's a love that I have that Christ actually died for to reconcile me. So he actually solves my biggest problem so that now I actually can live differently and can begin to move towards him. So his call in verse 12 to live out our identity with a new way of living just makes sense. Christ has changed you. You used to live this way. Now, now turn and go the other direction, right, towards this positive redemptive pattern. So you have the negative part of repentance and now moving in faith towards God himself. He says, put on then, and I love it, he reminds us of our identity because not to express, already are holy and beloved and compassionate because God has already changed you. Now live into that, right, embody what is true, move towards a compassionate heart and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Contrast that to the way he talks to earlier in the plan protecting your life. Compassion is on the line when something offends you. When you're not grasping for identity, then you can move towards kindness. You can be misunderstood and stay humble. You can be meek if you're not demanding someone esteem you so you feel good about yourself. You can actually embody patience because you're trusting your identity to God himself. So the identity of the gospel, what Christ has accomplished for us, causes us to move away from what we used to put our identity in, all this stuff, and these behaviors are not, again, not just vices, they are the expressions of trying to hold on to an identity ourselves. And now we get to move towards the things of the Spirit, right? So we'll just read verse 12. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, put on compassionate hearts and kindness and humility and meekness and patience. And then move towards each other, right? Bearing with one another. If you have a complaint against another one, someone hurts you, rather than taking out vengeance upon forgive them. And God is the reference, right? As the Lord has already forgiven you, right? This is your identity. Then live in light of that identity. So, so you must forgive because you've been forgiven is the logic. Verse 14, and above all these things, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. Let the, the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which indeed you were called. You in spiritual songs with thankfulness in your heart to God. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. If you're playing along at home and you're drawing some circles, in that G circle, put Colossians 3, 1 to 4. In that negative circle, put 5 to 11. In that positive circle, put 12 to 17. Maybe a little bit, but I think that captures, and you see this in lots of places, like Romans 12, 1. It says, therefore, in view of God's mercies, which he's been telling the gospel, don't be conformed to the image of the world. Step away from that and rather be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You see it in Titus as well, where the, the grace of God has appeared, right, the gospel. And it trains us and teaches us to turn away from some worldly passions and to live upright, holy lives. So you see this pattern of these three circles, I think, all over the scriptures. So, so our church is committed to transformation because that's the good news of what Jesus came to do. And we believe the process of that is hearing and receiving into the gospel, 
a lifestyle of repentance, right? It's active. It moves towards something, right? Verse 5, put to death, take some work. So this is against the trap of passivity, as if you just trust Jesus and say a prayer and everything's fine. He says, no, there's a violence here to you turning away from uh, the things of the flesh. Put them to death, he says. And do it, therefore, as one who's already been forgiven, right? Which keeps us from the trap and moralism. Both are diminished as we understand what Christ has done. But we're called to change. And he doesn't just leave us saying, stop doing bad stuff and quit it. He tells us what it looks like to actually embody a gospel identity, to be reconciled to God, and these new behaviors, learning a new way to engage. So, so that's the process of transformation. If you have questions, I'd love to talk about it. I care deeply about this. See your life transformed. To my, my life, my, my marriage, my, my parenting, me, me as an adult man in his 40s wrestling with my identity, for that to be transformed and changed, right? For the places where you, maybe you read this vice list in chapter uh, 3, verses 5 to 11, you go, dude, that, that was Friday night. That's what COVID has looked like for me. That, that's, that's the way I always cope when I'm overwhelmed. And to hear that Jesus actually has an answer for those things. God doesn't just want to tolerate you or have you mitigate against your shame. He actually wants to redeem and transform and free you. Again, sin is not the bad stuff that we can't do, won't let us. It's death, the scriptures say. So, so put to death what causes death and move towards what brings life because God has already given you an identity in Jesus. So that's, that's the process, right? And we're going to give ourselves to the teaching and the application. So when we meet and talk, it's going to be, man, what does it mean for you to trust Jesus in this moment? What have you been to Jesus that you could turn away from? God call you to actually turn to instead because you trust. That's how a counseling session sounds. It should be how a sermon sounds. It should be what happens in your small group. Even the way we're structuring small groups around some, some values. If you hear in our small group kind of vocabulary, we're trying to spur acronym from Hebrew 10 to spur one another on. We say we're going to gather around the scriptures and prayer, which is where we learn about what it means to walk by the Spirit. And then the U is to unburden ourselves, to repent. And then the R is to remind each other of our gospel identity. So the four things small groups do is let the word speak to us, engage in prayer, talk back to God, unburden ourselves from where we've struggled. The question is not, did you struggle? Are you good or bad? It's, where did you struggle? Come unburden yourself, right? Because this letter is written to Christians. It's not those people out there. It's to Christians, which means we should expect to need to put to death things that are earthly among us. So when we gather together, we won't be shocked to go, there's places where my old way crept in, where the reflexes are just so strong. And then we remind each other, each other of our gospel identity, kind of root us back in who God's made us to be. Right? So it shapes everything that we do, because our goal is transformation, because we're trying to express the faithfulness of God, not just in message, but in reality as we're transformed and changed. All right, so that's the process. And then you can go to an outer circle. The text also gives us practices. So, so if processes are what we're doing, then practices are things that we participate in to engage. So the next slide has that as a circle there. And I think the text gives us four primary practices. And again, they're not mind-blowing, but, the, but they're summary in some way. So go with me to verse 15. How do you actually engage this? What does it look like? He says, and let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you've been called in one body and be thankful and let the word the practices to engage the word to have the word actually show us to transform us to show us what actually God desires of us so he says engage the word let it dwell richly in you and then he says sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs which is worship so, so we have the word and we have worship, right, to sing. And surely it's not limited just to this room to sing songs together. It's, it's our hearts being drawn in adoration to God. Even talk about the Psalms is to say back to God ways that he's given us language to communicate with him, right? But we go, we go word and we go worship. And then there's a community part of this, right? He says teaching and admonishing one another. And he says that we should do this in, in one body. And he says one another earlier in the text as well, right? So there's a, a giving ourselves to the practice of living in community. If we've been called into one body, that has a relationship with each other. So, so community and gathering is actually a practice. To not be isolated and alone, but to let people into my life so I can hear the good news. So we have the word, worship, we have community. And if you jump over to chapter 2, it says, continue steadfastly in prayer. 
which is the fourth practice. So the word and worship and community and prayer are what we give ourselves to so that we can actually experience this process of transformation. The word teaches us what God has done, what he's like, what we're like. We communicate to him through prayer, right? These are all interconnected. We do that in relationships with people, and that causes us to worship God. But we give ourselves to these practices. The belief is that those very simple practices are what actually change us over time. Cole mentioned our friend Kevin Haley, who is a really dear friend of mine. And I have, I don't know, dozens of texts on my phone that are just a couple of candles on a table. He would send them to me early in the morning to remind me that he was in God's word and he was praying for me. And what it wasn't showing off, it was just going, hey, I'm doing it right now. I'm praying for you. I'm in God's word. I'm, I'm engaging. And then if you ever met with Kevin Haley, what you would do when you meet with him, it wasn't rocket science. I talked to a young man today. He was like, it changed me forever, but it wasn't mind-blowing. All he would do is open up the word. He would pray for me. He would remind me of what God has done, and he would give me a chance to unburden myself. And he was like, dude, that's what we're doing in small groups. He's like, I know. It's like, it's that, it's that simple. And he would do it in community, and you would walk away worshiping. So Kevin was in his 60s, and for 30 years, he had given himself to those faithful, quiet practices that actually transformed him. And we talked a couple of weeks about the discipline of hiddenness, and, and I don't feel like I was super clear. I was trying to communicate. It's in the secret places that we grow and develop the things that you actually long to be in your regular life. So Kevin learned how to suffer, how to have hope in the midst of overwhelming circumstances, how to face such pain in his body and in his soul and maintain his faith in God. He didn't learn that in a hospital room hooked up to an IV. He learned that at that dining room table. He learned that interacting with people, talking about the Word. For 30 years, he had trained himself to believe that God is good, that His Word is reliable, that His promises are true. Life is secure because of Christ's sacrifice. Came to a couple of times that morning, and God gave a massive gift where he was able to write with his finger letters on his daughter's hand. And so he would write a letter, and they, she would call it out, and someone would write it down, and, and they would, he was communicating with them, kind of giving them blessings. It was amazing to see how coherent he was. And he said in there, it is well with my soul, which we sang at the funeral. He said, I've not lost my faith. And he said, I love you and proud of you, saying all these things. But he learned that in the quiet places of his heart. So here was the vision for me as I thought about Kevin's life and, and the kind of a spiritual father that we should aspire to be. It's not, not these spectacular moments. It was not last out of his life that formed it was decades, small, faithful, and very simple practices that you would imagine are just like yours, that some days you fall asleep in the middle of it. Like sometimes I'm praying, and I'll drift off to sleep while I'm praying out loud. So I'll pray with Adrian. We'll hold hands at night, laying in bed, and I'll like start to drift off, and I always try to cover it. I'll start like praying like colors and numbers and random things, and she'll like giggle and squeeze my hand. No, no, I was going somewhere like, Lord, you are the bluest of all the blue and the three and the thing. So that like it's not actually that impressive, right? But in that small, simple space, the good news for you is that it's not this Jedi level thing. It's as simple as hearing from God in his word, speaking back to him in prayer, gathering with other people so they can remind you of what's true, and letting that transform your heart where you sing and say what is beautiful about God. Those practices actually change us. So the process of the gospel and repentance and walking by faith are actually lived out in a very small place of some practices. Does that make sense? So, so we gather to actually do those practices. So the reason why we have this prayer time at our service, which is fastly becoming one of my favorite things that we do, but let's be honest, it's a little bit awkward. And you're not sure like if you're supposed to be praying or if they're praying or who's praying or how do we do that? But we've been doing it now for eight months. And what I'm hearing from you is, man, I'm praying more now by myself in my home on, on the quietness of my kitchen table. It's, it's forming us. Right? It's changing how we pray on Thursdays when we gather over the noon hour, like just simply committing to, so I don't know what the math on that was, that 25 times or 30 times, we've just done this together. It's changing us as a community, right? So to say these are the practices gives me marching orders as our pastor to say, hey, these are the things that we must pursue. I must 
train you and teach you and help you and instruct you and model for you, give you examples to kind of practice this and live it out so that you learn how to be in the Word, so that you learn how to pray and feel comfortable in the presence of God, so that you can be in relationship to provide opportunities. So our marriage class last night is just an opportunity to get to know people and to hear the good news of Jesus applied to marriage. Right? That's my job is to create those kinds of contexts where you can live out those practices. And one more I want to highlight. Those are the four. But, but I love that three times in this text he tells us to be thankful. It's the Greek word where we get our word Eucharist from, which is what we use for communion. So the reason why we take communion every single Sunday is to practice thankfulness for the sacrifice of Jesus. Actually, we plan this Sunday to kind of change it up a little bit. What I long for is that you would actually come forward and you would hear somebody say, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. This is blood shed for your life. You would take that, say, thanks be to God, and you would receive just a physical reminder that what Christ did on the cross is actually enough to rescue and redeem you. And you would actually respond physically and come. And then I want it to be a robust response, right? We have people who can pray for you. Our pastors are available if you have questions or you're struggling. Like, we want the room to respond. We've been limited in these little cups because of COVID. And actually, this morning, we were planning on having you come forward and take from trays. We were going to try like a hybrid step. And then we had that exposure a couple weeks in our kids' ministry, and the numbers are going up. And so we're like, man, now it's probably not a great time to start something new when it comes to contact. Which, by the way, side note, hey, would you just pray for us with that whole thing? Like, nobody likes what's going on. This is hard to do. It was hard before. The thought of going back into, like, higher numbers is pretty overwhelming. Would you just pray for your pastors? We're going to meet tomorrow night with our COVID team just to go, God, what do you want? Keep ourselves safe and not live in fear, but be wise. So, so parentheses, would you just pray for us? We're trying to decide how to respond to the increase of numbers. But, but we want to take communion in a way that actually models this community and declares the good news of the gospel and starts as the place of application. The reason why we do it where we do it in the service is you've heard a message, you've sang some songs, you've prayed some prayers, and now you're going like, what do I do with this? To anchor thankfulness first in what Christ has already done gives you a stable place to take some risks, to be honest, to actually explore your own heart because you've experienced the love of God as you actually physically taste reminders of his broken body and shed blood to to stir that thankfulness in you for what Jesus has done. And from that place now, you're free to go, okay, what about my marriage? What about my singleness? What about my job? What about my my behaviors? What about my struggles with addiction? What about the places where I'm in the shadows and overwhelmed with shame? How does this good news actually be applied to that? Like that's a practice. Friends, if we take communion every Sunday, it won't become rote. Our hearts will grow. To every single Sunday, remember and taste the goodness of the Lord actually grows our faith in robust ways, right? So so we are engaging in these kinds of practices because communion just declares the good news of the gospel. It helps you to apply it, which is why Jesus gave us such a beautiful, tangible, physical, mundane practice to actually cultivate thankfulness. Okay, so we have a process, we have some practices, and then the rest of the text goes towards places. Because your faith is not meant to be lived out in this room. It's not meant to be lived out at your dining room table. Those are all real, but but you're actually meant to live in real life, in a real relationship. So so it's fascinating to me. He does this too in Ephesians where he takes these spaces and he begins to apply the good news of the gospel to where you actually live your life. So this next outer ring of this diagram is the places where your transformation is meant to be lived out. And the first one is in personal relationships. He talks marriage and parenting talks the places where you're most seen and most loved right the scriptures actually give instructions to apply the goodness of the gospel in that place so your personal relationships single or married should be engaging the good news of the gospel and you live out your transformation there he goes from there into slaves and masters which is really tricky for us and we go, man, what does that actually mean for us? And how do we think about what the scriptures call? It's different than chattel slavery that our country has a history with, but it still was really oppressive. It would be too small to limit it just to our jobs and bosses and employees. That's not enough of an application of slaves and masters. It actually had a lot to do with society and social class and how, how we engage. And what's fascinating for me is you have in this text a letter written to the church and slaves and masters are addressed at the same time because they're in one body. So Christianity subversively flips the power structures of the day and engages socially as it redeems and welcomes people into the light, slaves and masters. 
so they can be brothers and sisters in the same body. And he gives instruction of how to engage it. Don't, don't abuse and lord over. Remember, you have a master, he says to masters. And because you have a master, slaves, you can actually respond with integrity to your master. Which gives us a ton of tension. Lots of struggle with what do we do with that in 2021. But just hear the good news that God sees slaves. He gives them instruction. And the body of Christ is such a redeemed place that it makes sense for them to be in fellowship together. There's massive applications to our struggle with racism and our struggle with how we do classism and our struggle with the way that we have prejudices and we divide. There's massive implications. So, so we take that category and we say there's application to the place you live socially and vocationally. Now, the scriptures actually are meant to give us instruction and trans students or we have a, a nine to five job or we're a creative or we're an entrepreneur or we're unemployed. Wherever we are, whatever our vocation is at the time, God's word speaks into that, right? So you have personal relationships, social and vocational settings. And then he ends with this really tricky thing in chapter 4, verse 2 to 6, when he talks about outsiders. I want to say it's tricky because that word is maybe not a very welcoming word. If you're not a follower of Jesus and you hear the scriptures call you an outsider, you might go, whoa, that's not very welcoming. But, but actually, it's meant to be an invitation. Hey, because Christ came to take outsiders and make them insiders. Actually, he's been arguing throughout the Colossians letter, hey, you used to be on the outside and God made a way for you to be on the inside. So what he's saying is to those who have yet to trust Christ, for those who don't know Jesus, live out your transformation. In verse 5, he says, walk in wisdom towards outsiders. Part of the way he wants them to pray is so that the gospel would go forward to these people who have not yet heard it. He's saying you should live out your transformation not in cloistered environments and just among Christians, not even just in your home and not even just in your job, but you should think about the world and what it means for people not to know God, and you should take the good news of this transforming gospel to them locally and internationally, right? To spread and declare the mystery of Christ, he says in verse 3 of chapter 4, to declare that... It's got Paul in prison, and he says, join me in proclaiming this to people so that those who don't yet know Jesus can hear. So, so the places that we live out this transformation as we embody these practices is in our personal relationships, our social vocational settings, and with those who don't yet know Jesus with, with outsiders. Okay, if you were to kind of just count those up, there are like 10 categories there. That's a gospel, repentance, walking by the Spirit, the word, prayer, worship, community, your personal relationships, your social vocational settings, and those who don't yet know Jesus. It's a little bit reductionistic, but what if we said, hey, that's our target as a church. That's what we're giving ourselves to. So our classes, our small groups, our sermons, our resources are going to be aimed at helping you grow in those, helping you practice those, helping you understand those. So, so that for the fall, we're planning like an Old Testament survey class to help us understand what the heck the Old Testament's about. Because the word is really important, but we read it and go, dang, I don't know what to do with those things, right? So let's do a survey on the Old Testament. Let's do a class on how do you actually share your faith? What does it mean to draw close to people? And how will we help you to actually do that? Our small groups, again, are kind of at this bullseye target of this diagram to say, hey, we want to live into a gospel reality and walking by the Spirit and unburdening ourselves in our small groups. So it is shaping how we engage. So our ministry plan is built around these 10 things. So why the church exists is to declare the goodness of God is faithfulness. What we're trying to do is live into that through these processes of transformation, these practices of transformation, so you can live in the places that you actually live with a transformed life. Right, so, so real quickly, then let me just kind of give you some more. And I've been eager to share with you how it fits and how it works. So I've, I've kind of tipped my hat to small groups a little bit. I've tipped my hat to some of the structures, but what our staff and our leaders do, actually for the last couple months, we've been walking through this passage and just saying, how are we doing with that? Where are our people at? Where do we have opportunity to grow? And that becomes our ministry strategy for the year. Well, we're not, we don't seem to be doing this very well. That's okay. Let's help people do that. Our job is to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. This is what the ministry is. So we build structures and, and strategies around that. What's also beautiful to me is like, these are not just 10 columns, like they interplay, right? So the more you read the scriptures, the more you worship God, the more you're changing and you have parenting needs, you don't know what to do. So you go to the scriptures, you ask for help in community and you engage that in the world. Like they actually have this beautiful interplay between these categories, right? So they're not just sterile columns. There are ways that you actually live out your life. And so I don't want it to be too rigid, even though I think the simplicity of it gives us some hope. And I think it can also be an evaluation for you. I think you can engage this text 
not as what our church does, but as what Christians should do. So the first time I drew this on a napkin, I was like, man, I would love it if our people could articulate this at a coffee shop of what we're trying to do. Not because it's the innovative strategy of Leewood Baptist Church, but because it's what Christians should do. This is a letter written to Christians about how they live out their transformation, what it means for them to come under the lordship of Jesus. And as they do that, they're, they're transformed, they're engaging in practices, and they're, and they're changing the spaces where they live. And so you should be able to articulate not what our church is doing, but what God's called you to do as a follower. And if that's what he's called you to do as a follower, then of course it's what our church should also be doing. So it becomes an evaluative tool for you and for our church. Again, not to rank and compare, but as an invitation to growth, to go, hey, where do I need to be transformed? That is what we are giving ourselves to as a church. And I hope in that space in the years to come, it doesn't feel provocative or innovative. I don't want to be creative at all. I just want to follow that text. And I believe if for decades we gave ourselves to those 10 things, we would change. Our homes would change. Our jobs would change. Our communities would change. Our church would change. And the spheres that we live our lives in the world would also begin to change, both in Kansas City and around the world. As that embodies um, this kind of change and stuff in your heart so that you actually want to live that out in the other places where your life actually happens. That, that's what we're about. Feebly, limping along, but that's where we're aiming. So, so with that in mind, here's how we're going to close. We're going to take communion because I want to practice being thankful for what Christ has done. And then we're going to sing the song, The Church is One Foundation. It's an old hymn to remind us that this whole thing is built on Jesus. The foundation is not the vision of our church. That's not the place to kind of land as a church. It's what Christ has done for us. That is our only foundation. So the way we take communion is we have these little cups. If you missed them, there's some in the back. There's also a handful of them up here. In that one little cup, you have a little wafer that represents the body of Jesus, and you have some juice that represents his shed blood. For all who are trusting Christ, who find their life hidden with him and God, I invite you to come and take communion. And if you're not yet trusting Jesus, there's some prayers in the back of the bulletin that will give you some examples of how to pray. But it's meant to be an invitation to those who do know Jesus and a call to those who don't yet know Jesus to actually trust him. So maybe today, as you hear what he's done and how he sacrificed for you and what his plan has been to reconcile you, maybe you're ready to trust him this morning. If that's you, then take communion for the first time and let's talk about it after the service. We'd love to hear your story and share with you more what it means to follow Jesus. If you're not trusting in Christ, I'm so thankful that you're here. Just sit and pray and ask God to speak to you. If this is real, would you help me and show me? You can do that. It's a great way for you to apply this text. I'm going to pray. We'll take communion. We'll sing one song, and then we'll go. But as we take communion, would you ask God to grow your heart and affection for what he's done for you, even as you remember his sacrifice? So let me pray. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. And thanks to the church is built on what you've done. Thanks that we don't have to have techniques and strategies and tricks and there's no fad diets or quick fixes. It is you engaging in meaningful ways to change and transform us over time. We just say thank you. And thanks that you made that possible through your sacrificial death on the cross so that our sins could be atoned for. We could receive reconciliation and we have hope for actually being changed. So I pray you would encourage my friends and even nourish them while they take communion. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. for joining us online. Leewood Baptist Church exists to glorify God by making disciples of all nations. For more information about us and our ministry, please visit us at www.leewoodbaptist.com.